You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, the other day I came home from a run with a friend of mine who was in town visiting our family, and we had gone for a lengthy run for us and had gone at a fairly quick pace. And fortunately, I have the kind of wife who, when she asks, how far did you go and how fast did you go? Uh, She believes my reply. But had I had a wife who did not believe my reply, I would quickly and swiftly call forth witnesses, so to speak, in order to testify to the veracity and truthfulness of my claim. I would ask my friend to tell her again, hey, how far did we go? How fast did we run? I would pull out my little GPS unit and show her, look how far we went, look at our pace. And I would seek to give evidence to back up the claim that I had made. Now in John chapter 5, Jesus makes a major claim. You might remember at the beginning of the chapter, which we covered already, Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda with its five roofed colonnades. He then proceeds to find a man who had been lame for 38 years, approaches this man and says, do you want to be made well? And commands this man to arise. He gets up and as he rises, he is made completely well. He takes up his bed and begins to leave at the command of Jesus. The religious leaders, of course, are concerned about this conspicuous individual who is carrying his bed uh, on the Sabbath day, and they begin to interrogate him, and the man eventually finds out that it was Jesus who had healed him. And so he reports back to those same religious leaders and says, it was Jesus who spoke to me and told me, to be healed and to take up my bed and carry it on the Sabbath day. They then began to interrogate Jesus for the simple fact that he had been healing on the Sabbath day. And the line of reasoning that Jesus used in John chapter 5 was simple. God, the Father, has been working every single day of human history. Even though he rested on the seventh day from his creative work, for all of history he has been working, holding the planet together and doing his part in sustaining human life. Jesus said, if that's what my father is like, who obviously works even on the Sabbath, so must I also work on the Sabbath. And they understood this to mean that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Now Jesus, in affirming that claim, then went on in John chapter 5, verse 19 through 30, to explain and to clarify what that equality with the Father looks like. He was sure to tell these religious leaders that the relationship he had with the Father was one of submission and was one in which he was following the Father's lead. That every good work that he was doing was given to him by the Father. And so he clarifies and interprets there in that section what it means for him to be equal with God, God in human flesh. Now, today, in this 
section, we continue that very same speech from Jesus. And no longer is he attempting to describe what the relationship looks like, but he wants to call forth witnesses to the truthfulness of the huge claim that he is making to be equal with God. He says in verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that Jesus felt that there was any chance that he was lying or not telling the truth. He said in John 8, verse 14, he said, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from, and you do not know where I'm going. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is that on a practical level, it would be understandable for people to reject his claim to be the Son of God, and to be equal with God, and to be God the Son. It would make sense for people to reject his claim if there was no evidence And there were no witnesses to back up that particular claim. And so he says, if I alone bear witness, hey, my testimony is not deemed true. You won't follow me just off my word. He says, there is another, verse 32, who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Here, I believe Jesus is referencing his heavenly father. He says, listen, there's basically, I mean, in one sense, we're going to see in this text, Jesus call forth a few different witnesses. But but there is in one sense the reality that even though he'll call forth John the Baptist and his miraculous works and the Holy Scripture, the reality is at the end of the day, it's God the Father who is the evidence or the uh, testifier of who Jesus is. He goes on in verse 33 and he calls forth his first witness that the father has gotten behind. He says in verse 33, he says, You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his Light. And so witness number one that Jesus calls to the stand, so to speak, is John the Baptist. All right, and he says some wonderful things about John. He, first of all, references the reality that they had sent for John. We might remember that earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. They had sent a delegation from Jerusalem to visit John. We learn in the other Gospels that John would often speak to these religious leaders and say, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. And so he says, you know, you sent for John. I I know that. We know that. He bore witness to the truth. And what Jesus says in verse 34 is he says, and the testimony that I receive, it's not from man, but I'm telling you about John's witness so that you could be benefited, that you could be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I did not personally benefit from the testimony of John. It's not like Jesus went out to the Jordan River one day, saw John baptizing people, and all of the sudden had an epiphany where he realized that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised Savior 
of the Old Testament. No, he, he knew that from his very earliest days. He was very conscious of God's desire and design for his life. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. He said in his childhood to his parents when they left him in Jerusalem inadvertently and he was there in the temple teaching and debating with the religious leaders. He said, you know, of course I'm going to be about my father's business. He knew exactly who he was. He didn't benefit from the message of John in a personal sense, but John's testimony was designed to open up the eyes of the people in that era and in that day to the reality of Christ. And Jesus says of John, he says he was a burning and he was a shining lamp. And he, and he certainly was. And so witness number one for Jesus here that he calls to the stand is this man, John the Baptist, who was bold and forceful, powerful, convicted, godly. Uh, this man, John, was a rugged prophet with a deep message inside of his heart. And I just wanted to say to you that I believe that this is still a wonderful testimony and witness towards Christ even today. To have men and women who, with godliness and consecration, who are separated from the world and live a different manner of life, with forceful conviction, true boldness, and a real deep belief inside of their heart in Jesus Christ, I believe that people like this can be wonderfully and radically effective for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. It's not simply just having a certain tone and proclaiming the gospel, but a person who really believes it. And I think you see that in someone who really believes the truth. There's a firmness in the way they present themselves that is that is eye-opening and is effective in testifying of Christ. But Jesus confessed, as we move on in this text, that even John's witness was not the greatest testimony of all. He says, verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus goes on and he calls forth another witness. He says, you know, I have better witnesses than John. And one of them is the, or are the works that I do. The, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These works bear witness of who I am. Now, clearly, John, our writer, believed this. That's why at the end of this book, in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he said, I have recorded these signs so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, that you might believe in him, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I think that John is talking about the entire book of John, but it is notable that there are specific signs, miraculous signs that John points out all throughout his gospel. And apparently, this was even working in Jesus' day. Nicodemus, you remember in John chapter 3, went to Jesus and said, We know that you're a messenger or a prophet come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And so Jesus looks at 
these people and he says, listen, look at my works. My works testify to you that I have been sent from the Father, that I really truly am the Father's Son, that I am God the Son here in human flesh. Now, the thing that's tricky about this statement from Jesus is that obviously he's not the only character in biblical times to have performed miracles. No, there was Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and many others who performed the miraculous. Obviously, it was God working through them, but they were the instrument that God had chosen to use. And for none of them did their miracles serve as evidence that they were the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the universe, the Son of God, God the Son. But none of them made that claim. Jesus, however, was making that claim. And to make a claim like that and still be able to perform the miracles means that God himself had not pulled the plug on Jesus' ministry as he would have had he made the claim and it been untrue. And so Jesus points to his works, his miracles, the miraculous, as a sign of his identity. Now, God had been promising that his Messiah and Savior would come in this kind of power. It says in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, he says, Then in that day when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Jesus was that stream in the desert. He was that water in the wilderness. It's, it's as if God had said years past, hey world, look for this character. Don't look for a, a, a mere claimant. Look for a person who goes beyond claiming it to a person who evidences these miracles and is able to live this kind of life. And Jesus, of course, as the Spirit of God was upon him, was casting out demons and healing the sick and doing incredible, miraculous things. And, and he himself would say in Matthew 12, verse 28, as I do these things, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so witness number two, the works of Jesus. Now, I just wanted to note that the works of Jesus, obviously, are not just some cheap demonic trickery or black magic or momentary outburst of dark power. No, this power from Christ is a healing, cleansing, helping power. It's victorious power. It is used for good. It is in the light. And I say that simply because, at least in my culture, and I think in many of the cultures throughout the world, there is an infatuation with power, and so often that power is dark and demonic, and by nature is then destructive. Just as the magicians of Pharaoh could only bring more poisonous snakes, could only bring more blood, could only bring more frogs and could not remedy any of the things that God had done through his man Moses. So the dark demonic powers of today also work. They only destroy lives. There may be power there, but it is destructive power. With Jesus, there is power that is above and beyond that power, but also helpful, creative, and good. And so 
The truth of Jesus is also helped as he calls this witness to the stand by his miraculous works. And I think even today we would look around and we would confess that this is true. In one sense, through miraculous works. I mean, it it may not be as common as, as we would like. But when God touches a human body and heals a human body, when the lame walk and when the blind see, when these things happen in our modern era, they are designed to point to the power of Christ. But I think in another sense, a spiritual sense, when we see a person who has been struggling in addiction, when we see a person whose life has been absolutely bound and wrapped up in sin and we see them delivered and healed and begin to be restored by Christ, we're seeing another wonderful evidence for the truth and the veracity of the claims of Christ. All right, so again, the works of Jesus. Now, verse 37, Jesus goes on and he, at least for me, I take this as a parenthesis. I think he's already told us that the God the Father is the one who bears witness of him. And, and that witness has been manifested through John the Baptist and through these miraculous works. And he'll talk about the scripture in just a moment. But before he does that, in verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who whom he has sent. And so Jesus now takes a moment in verse 37 and 38 to declare to these religious leaders, to these Jews who are questioning him. He says, listen, let me remind you, it's the father who himself is bearing witness of me. It may be manifest through my works or through the Baptist or through scripture, but make no mistake, it's the father who has done this. And the father had been, obviously, and would testify of Jesus. In one sense, very audibly. At his baptism, at his transfiguration, at the triumphal entry, there was an audible voice from heaven speaking out and testifying of Jesus. That he's the son, the beloved son of God. But I think in one other sense... There's just the simple reality that God the Father speaks to the hearts of human men and women and speaks to us concerning the truthfulness of the claims of Christ. John says in 1 John 5, verse 9 and following, he says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne Concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. A very exclusive claim that eternal life is found inside of Jesus, the son of God. But this is the message or the testimony that the Father is speaking into the hearts of mankind. Now, people can either receive that message or reject that message, but it is the testimony of God the Father himself. He is speaking. He is convicting. He is working. God the Father is much more evangelistic than we as his church could ever hope to be. He loves the world and he speaks to human hearts. 
I think one evidence of this is in the worldwide, at many times violent, backlash against Christianity. The rejection that is so harsh and that is so filled with animosity, I think is just merely an evidence that God has been speaking to human hearts and those human hearts do not want to receive that message. But we praise God that some do. Now in verse 39, Jesus calls his final witness. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so he holds out a third witness and it's the scriptures. He says, these are those that they, they bear witness about me. Now to start it off, he says, you think that in them you have eternal life. And there is evidence that the Jews, when they were taken into captivity in Assyria years earlier, gone off to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and the temple was destroyed, there's evidence that many Jewish teachers and scholars taught that if you simply studied the scripture, you could have life. I mean, they had no sacrificial system at that point. They had no temple. They were far from home. And so the idea was, hey, instead, study the scripture. Study the scripture. It will bring you life. And Jesus warned against that. He says, you think that in simple study, you'll have eternal life. That is not the case. Which obviously, as I'm doing a through the Bible series here, you know, is a warning to us. It's not the simple study or listening to the word of God that causes us to grow and be godly. It's action that we need. There's application of God's word. We want his word. We love his word. He wrote it for us and gave it to us. We would never want to despise it, but we don't want to worship it. And that's what these people were doing. They thought that there was life simply from studying it and knowing it, which is good, but not if it doesn't lead to a changed and transformed life. And so Jesus warned against that. But then he says, these scriptures are they that bear witness about me. Now, what a bold claim that is. (laughs) Can you imagine me announcing to you today, I've made a discovery. The whole Bible is all about me. Uh, That'd be a ridiculous claim. You'd probably continue listening just to see what else I would say or how deep I would dig myself into that hole. But eventually you'd say, that's enough of this guy. But Jesus makes this bold claim. He's the only one that is able to make it. The whole Bible is all about him. And it truly is. As you read the Old Testament, it is all pointing forward to Christ. He is the offspring from Eve who would crush the head of Satan, Genesis 3, verse 15. He is the scepter of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. He is the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, verse 13. He's the coming prophet to be like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, Hebrews 10, verse 1. He's the promised Davidic king, 2 Samuel 7, verse 13 and 14. He is the true great high priest, Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says in Revelation 19, verse 10, 
that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I, I hope that as I'm teaching through the Bible with you, and I hope that as you tune in and listen, I hope that the discovery is Jesus in all passages of scripture, that he would be the focal point, that we would not merely moralize the text, but that we would see Jesus in scripture. But Jesus holds up the scripture as a witness of who he is. And of course, you look at the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ, and Jesus fulfilled them to a T. Others have run the mathematical odds of Jesus fulfilling even just handfuls of those Old Testament prophecies, and none of that could ever happen by chance. And so Jesus wonderfully is testified of in the Old Testament, but his second coming is spoken of as well. He will come again. Now, verse 41, Jesus said to them, I do not receive glory from people. That's what they did and do. But Jesus said, I don't receive glory from people. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus is very bold here. He points out to them. He says, listen, you don't have a love for God inside of your heart, which is the core issue. I have come in my father's name, verse 43, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So in other words, hey, here I am. You don't love God, so you reject me. But by rejecting me, you open yourself up to deception. You're going to receive another who is not the truth. How can you, verse 44, believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. They were blinded because of their pride and their desire for the glory of men. Do not think, verse 45, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He says, you are all guilty under Moses. I don't need to accuse you. Moses does. Now, in one sense, they were guilty because they had broken Moses' law. Jesus demonstrated that in the Sermon on the Mount, that every person is really in, in their heart a murderer, a liar, an adulterer. It's deep down inside of us. But here, Jesus really isn't saying that. He says, Moses accuses you because Moses wrote all about me and you reject me. I'm the one that Moses was writing about. And so Jesus condemns them uh, as a result of these witnesses that point to the reality of his deity. And I hope that you and I will cling to the truth of the deity of Christ for the rest of our days. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.